Welcome to episode eight of Breaking the Ice. My name is Paris. And my name is Connor, and we are your co-hosts. Today on our show, we're looking at the future of Northern innovation in a slightly different way. We're talking to the people who will carry it out in the years to come. We're going to be talking to two young people from or living in the North who are already involved in STEM, science, technology, engineering, or math. These students want to work to solve unique problems facing the North and apply their skills in local communities. Their stories show us just how much talent there is in the North. Now it's up to us and our policymakers to ensure that these young people have the support they need to make the North the place for innovation they want it to be. First on the show, we'll be talking to Nicholas Flowers. Nicholas is an 18-year-old Nuuk student from Hopedale Nanatsibut, which is in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. In 2020, Nicholas won the STEAM Horizon Award, which recognizes innovative Canadian youth who promote positive changes within their communities using science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Nicholas started a club to promote the sciences and traditional Inuit craft making to other students. Now, he's studying environmental science at Memorial University and wants to look at how renewable energy can be used to power his hometown of Hopedale in the years to come. Later in the show, we'll also speak to Aisha Ahmad, who is based out of Whitehorse, Yukon Territory. She's studying Northern Environmental and Conservation Sciences with the University of Alberta in collaboration with Yukon University. Aisha is not from the North, but rather saw it as a place with enormous potential for science and innovation and decided to move there on her own initiative. We're excited for you to meet her later on in our show. But first, let's get to our interview with Nicholas Flowers. Okay, great. So welcome to Breaking the Ice. We're here today with Nicholas Flowers. Um, so Nicholas, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, a few lines about your background? Good morning, everyone. My name is Nicholas Flowers, and I'm a, an 18-year-old uh, university student from Hopedale, Nunatsiaput, Newfoundland, Labrador. And I grew up here in Hopedale, and growing up, I've always had a passion about learning ways to respect the land, respect nature, and I've been really inspired to study environmental science. And after I graduated high school, I decided to study at Grenfell Campus Memorial University in Cornerbrook. Great. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit more about Hopedale? Like how big is it and what's it like to grow up in Hopedale? So Hopedale is a small community on the north coast of Labrador. <clears throat> if I had to guess, I'd probably say there are maybe 800, 800 people on average living in Hopedale. And it's a very isolated community. There are no roads going to Hopedale. The only way to get to Hopedale is through a Twin Otter aircraft plane. And I've always loved growing up here in Hopedale. The weather can be quite rough at times, but it's a, it's a beautiful place to grow up and surrounded, being surrounded by the Inuit culture growing up has been, has had a huge influence on, on my family and I's lifestyle. And uh, growing up here in Hopedale, I got to learn the Inukidid language and I'm still learning in the moment. And I, uh, I went to high school and from, from grade kindergarten to grade 12, I, I learned many things here at Hopedale. And I'm proud to be from Hopedale. And someday I hope to come back and live here when I'm older as well. And so we were interested in what you were now studying at Memorial University. So I'm currently studying environmental science. <clears throat> I'm sort of following in the footsteps of my two older sisters, Vanessa Flowers and Veronica Flowers, who previously got their degrees in environmental science as well. And one of my biggest passions is to learn all that I can while I'm still young out to university. And if there are any ways that uh, our Nunatsiavut government here on the north coast of Labrador will someday implement renewable resources or um, renewable alternatives to energy, for example. Here in town, we only have a diesel plant and it would be great sometimes to harvest into the wind energy that we have and look towards more greener future. And also um, one of the future things I'd love to do is help to build a recycling program. Although we don't have one here in the community, I know that the potential is great. And along with that, I think it's very important to continue learning about Indigenous lifeways and to help promote health and well-being to youth by spending time with our Indigenous elders and learning the Inuktitut language as a part of reconnecting to our roots and uh, sharing this with others, whether 
um, these are our friends from within the community or friends that come into the community. And it's so important to uh, make the world a welcoming place. Could you tell us a little bit more about where your original interest in, in sciences came from? So what made you want to become an environmental scientist? Well, growing up, I've always enjoyed spending time out on the land. My family and I had a, had a cabin not too far away from home here in Hopedale. And I've always loved going out on the land and learning about the plants, about the wildlife and about the lifeways. And what's most important is how to gain knowledge about that from um, the perspectives of our, elder, our elders, our knowledge bearers in our community. And when I was in high school, I had the chance to attend the Students on Ice Foundation's Arctic Expedition. And I had a wonderful experience there. I learned so much about the Arctic and about ways that youth can help empower and encourage one another. Because <clears throat> when I went on the expedition, I went with youth and delegates and staff members from all around the world. And we got to go to Greenland and we also went to Nunavut. And on our voyage over two weeks, we got to learn a bit about how to protect the earth from climate change, how to um, respect indigenous lifeways, and also how to uh, learn about the land, like land-based science, but also connect the indigenous knowledge from our elders with the modern technology that is readily accessible. And these are ways that we can help uh, move into the future um, with a green perspective and respecting the earth. I think it'd be interesting. So like from this uh, Students on Ice uh, trip in 2019, if there was like one one of the biggest takeaways that you could take uh, from that, what would it have, what is it? I think one of the biggest takeaways that I had from Students on Ice was realizing how connected everyone around the world is and realizing that climate change not only impacts the Arctic in really strong ways, but it also impacts um, people living in the tropics regions. And there are ways that <clears throat> we have, as, as youth, we have to become aware of this. And for example, I remember um, being in an experience where I learned that the melting ice caps in Greenland and in Nunavut would be rising the sea levels and the communities in the tropical regions would have to become flooded out as a result of that. So I think what's most important when it comes to um, learning about climate change is knowing that we are all connected as, as a world and um, as a world of future youth and representatives. I know that Students on Ice can really help encourage um, youth in learning a bit more about how the impacts of climate change is really devastating, but most importantly, how we can help to mitigate those effects and how to uh, work towards a more sustainable future and knowing that that's possible. And I think um, you're a great example of this because the following year, right, you went on to win the STEAM Horizon Award. Um, and so for audiences who don't know, uh, this award recognizes innovative Canadian youth who promote positive changes throughout their community using science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, STEAM. Um, and so could you explain to us what you won this for? So when I was in high school, I remember applying for the STEAM Horizon Award. And a lot of it came from the encouragement that I had from my school, Amos Communist Memorial School in Hopedale, <clears throat> and also from my teachers and the staff members and my friends. And there's so much encouragement and like lots of uh, inspiration for applying for this. And I was thinking um, when it comes to STEAM, there's so much like it's a really broad category and uh, connecting this with what I learned from Indigenous elders in my community growing up, for example, in the arts and sewing and craft making, it was really it was a really exciting opportunity to apply for this. But I think really what I learned so much from students on ice in how to uh, do scientific research and how to respect the land and how to respect nature really helped to uh, encourage me to apply for this award. And I was really excited when I had the chance to win the award. But I think what was most important is that knowing even from a small indigenous community like Hopedale and Nunavut, anything is possible. And 
what's most important is helping to encourage youth to know that if they have a passion for something, you know that that passion can be nurtured by a community and we can help each other out knowing that um, no matter where you come from, it's important to be proud of who you are and to work towards your interests. I remember doing scientific research on finding how efficient of a fuel um, seal oil is. And now seal oil is the traditional oil from our ancestors when they would light the stone lamps called the hudlik. And I remember after doing this research um, from making a gift for my mother, a hudlik, it, it really uh, it really went province-wide and I entered into a, um, it was a provincial science fair and then it went nationally. And um, I remember that project alone gained, gained a lot of recognition, but I think what's most important is connecting um, a older style traditional knowledge with a more modern technique with using technology and knowing that there is ways to find um, more renewable fuels and fuels that are more efficient and cleaner for the environment. But it was, it's been a really fun experience. And I think the best part about it was getting to meet more youth from around the country who have also won the award. And if there's ever anyone who is interested in applying, I know I'd be glad to help them um, if there's any way that I can. Well, that's awesome. Um, I read uh, one of the things that, that I think impressed the awards was that you started a primary and elementary science club. Could you talk a little bit more about more what that club was? Also a weekly gathering, I think, where you did traditional crafts with, with some other people in the community. Definitely. So this took place in my last year. Um, this would be last year in grade 12 when I was finishing up at ACMS here in town. And I remember growing up, I've always wanted to have a bigger brother who would help me with science projects because um, I, I remember that was so much fun when I was a kid. And there was someone, um, there's a young man named Samuel Winters in our school and he was my high school teacher's son. And he, I remember he had a few activities and science experiments that he was interested in taking part of. So I said, you know, it's not too hard for me to take some time off after school to help him because I know when I was his age, I would want a bigger brother to look up to as well. <clears throat> so that's what we did. And it sort of started off as an informal science group, but after a while, there was more interest in our primary and elementary school. So I figured it's not too hard after school to stay behind and help them. So although it was only a short time before the pandemic closed our school, we did get to spend some time together. And I think um, what we also did was we took some science experiments that we could get at our local store. And also we would learn a bit about the traditional knowledge that comes from the land. For example, learning about how um, certain parts of an animal like a bird crop can be used to tell and predict the weather and things like that, right? So these are things that I remember hearing from my parents and grandparents growing up. And I wanted to pass it on to the younger generation. And along with that, that reminds me of my grandmother, she's recently passed away, but she was a very important role model in Hopedale and all of Labrador. She, her name was Andrea Flowers, and she done a lot of traditional sewing and craft work, and she taught my family and I as well. So I wanted to share this with youth who are my age, so that's when we started up a youth group. And I think what's most important when it comes to having a youth group is building an inclusive space where everyone can feel welcome. And I remember we got to make, uh, we done beadwork together. We got to have community game nights. And I'm hoping this summer we'll continue that through having campfires. And if um, the pandemic restrictions will lift, I'm sure they will since vaccines are rolling out. Um, it's looking to a bright future. So I'm hoping that this youth group can continue in the community and we can get to making crafts such as uh, traditional mittens on my hand and jackets and boots. But this is a long day down the road. so. I'm hoping to uh, continue helping out in any way I can. Yeah, and so on that note, um, you had previously said that it's important to promote various uh, fields of STEM through specifically Indigenous perspectives, right? And as you're speaking, it's coming through that uh, it seems mentorship um, and you know uh, mentorship with community 
is a big aspect of that. But could you go deeper into that, please? Absolutely. I think uh, it's really important because nowadays there are ways we're going to have to learn <clears throat> about more of a sustainable approach into uh, Indigenous knowledge. Like in our community, as I've talked about earlier, we're going to have to find renewable alternative sources and into energy. And this is going to take knowledge from STEM. And I know that we have a lot of uh, wind here in our community and resources that come from the land from the nature and we need to find ways to balance this out and work with ways um, that'll help like build a sustainable community and I know that uh, in our community as well there's a lot of um, interest especially in the youth in science and um, geology and technology and all sorts of great things including archaeology and uh, I think what's most important there is knowing that there, there are many opportunities to go to university and to continue studying these things if you're interested. I remember growing up, I was uh, always interested in science and I never really knew which direction that would take me in, but I became interested in archeology span as well and sort of preserving the Inuit history and indigenous culture within, our, within and around our community of Hopedale um, through like going to places on the land which were previously occupied by peoples and getting to learn about the artifacts and how tools were used and created. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's really important is to help, um, help to engage a community in supporting young people and also supporting their interest in STEM, whether it's great or small, because everyone has an equal potential. So that, that totally right. And I want to build on something you just mentioned, which was your work with the Archaeological Society. So you, I've read you've been involved with the Newfoundland and Labrador Archaeological Society. Could you tell us what work you do with them? Because innovation does come in a lot of different forms. It can be, it's not, it doesn't have to be specifically science and technology. Absolutely. So a little while ago, I think it was in 2007, there was an archaeologist. Um, her name is Dr. Beatrix Sorrent, and she came to Hopedale during the summertime and she started up a archaeological uh, research survey and also excavation near our um, Hopedale Moravian Mission Complex. And this was a German Moravian Mission Complex, including the church and mission station that would have been occupied in the seven, probably from the 1700s up to the late 1900s and the church is still ongoing today. And they, ex they excavated, um, Dr. Arendt and her team excavated several areas around the complex, researching how indigenous uh, Inuit lifestyle would have changed with the introduction of German Moravian missionaries and their belief system as well. So it was very interesting because this was a collection that was stored in our museum here in town and when the Newfoundland Labrador Archaeological Society asked me if I was interested in sort of recovering and getting a bit more knowledge about this um, collection, this community collection, I said, well, I think I'd be glad to do that because there's so much I want to learn about it too. And there was a lot of interesting artifacts, like uh, it took artifacts from earliest style hunting techniques from indigenous people like Rama Chirp all the way up to uh, certain kinds of newer technologies like the lead uh, balls in muskets and muzzle loader guns. So things like that. And you can actually get to see like the change in lifestyle. And also when going to places on the land, I work with archeology span students as well, youth my age in the summer of 2018. And we got to visit these incredible places on the land where we would see sad houses, the Illuswak uh, remains where people had lived. And inside these houses, we done test pits and you could find the change in lifestyle from like uh, the traditional diets like seal and the use of soapstone as a natural, uh, the natural material for building things into glass and nails and things that would have been introduced um, as time went by. And uh, that's also really interesting because 
this summer there's going to be a student coming from Memorial University and her name is Sarah Robinson. And together we're going to work together to revitalize the inequitated place names around Hopedale because many of the place names would lose their meaning over time through um, the loss in uh, translation and things like that. So I think it's going to be a really fun project, but also important because we'll get to spend time talking to elders and visiting land and mapping and digitalizing the traditional knowledge that have been known for centuries and thousands of years by our ancestors. So I think that's also a really important part of technology in the field of STEM is knowing that there are ways to digitalize Indigenous knowledge so that the future generation can have a guideline to learn from when our elders pass on because um, our elders will eventually pass on in our communities, but their knowledge can live through technology that is accessible in this same age. That's really awesome. I just want to say like, I just wish I was doing some of these things when I was 18. This is great to hear. This is what you're doing for your community and how your community um, is inspiring you. But what do you think uh, the, the provincial, um, territorial and federal governments could be doing um, to help promote the sciences um, in Northern and indigenous communities, right? Mm -hmm. That reminds me, and that's a wonderful question because uh, this past week, I had the honor to attend a heritage forum, and this took place in Nain, Nunatsiavut, Labrador. And I traveled to Nain, it's the most northern community of Nunatsiavut here on, here on the north coast of Labrador. And when we got to gather together, um, we had the chance to talk science, like talk about archaeology. There were archaeologists there. There were also delegates from the Nunatsiavut government. And uh, it was very inspiring because I, I was there to be a youth representative, but I mostly wanted to listen because there was so much knowledge shared from our elders and from um, president of the Nunatsiavut government, Johannes Lamp. And he, he was there as well. And it was very, very inspirational because we talked a bit about the impacts of climate change on archaeological sites and how it's so important to preserve these places, but also to preserve the knowledge and well-being of the people. And we talked a bit about the traditional place names, for example, near Nain and all across the coast of Labrador. And these are future projects with the help of STEM that uh, we'll be able to carry on. And also the language, the Inuktitut language was very, very powerful there because many, uh, there are many Inuktitut speakers within, uh, within the heritage form when I went. But Inuktitut is a language um, that is not as strong as it used to be, but it definitely has the potential to become stronger with the future generation. And uh, going to Nain was very ins inspirational for me. And, we got to go to the new Ilidusuak Cultural Center in Nain, and there it's an incredible place. There's a cultural exhibit about um, all the all the places, like the traditional knowledge, for example, what archaeologists have learned through the years and researched, and a lot of these uh, artifacts and um, things that were exhibited at the museum are there in person, and these. These, uh, this knowledge and these materials would have been brought back and repatriated to the land which they came from. So it's really important and great to see that the Nunatsiavut government is putting a lot of uh, interest and time into sharing and revitalizing the knowledge of the land, the knowledge of the people. And I think with STEM, it makes everything a bit more um, understandable because this day and age, youth are becoming more aware of how to use technology and science but it's so important to take the time to match it up with the with the science of our elders and uh that reminds me um <clears throat> a couple weeks ago here in hopedale there was what's called a siku presentation now siku means ice and it's an app that was created by indigenous elders in nunavut and it's spread all across inuit nunungat the um, traditional Inuit homelands. And this is an app that's really, uh, really reminds me of what we're talking about, about STEM, because 
when people go out on the land, there are places that can be dangerous. There are places that need to be uh, passed down to the youth so that they know which places are safe to go and to understand a bit a bit more about the wildlife patterns. And on Shiku, it's a app that you can get on your mobile devices. And when you go on hunting trips out on the land or whether you're going on an overday trip or overnight trip, you can record your trip and take it back to the community and post it when you're within range of Wi-Fi. And this was so cool to learn about because I hadn't previously known about it. But after uh, learning about it, when there was presentations in our community, I wanted to uh, help to promote and share the knowledge about it. And uh, it was it was so interesting to learn about because this is exactly where indigenous knowledge comes with the computer and they match together like never before. So that's uh, that can be found on many, many apps across mobile devices called SQL. And so um, I would want to follow up to ask, what advice would you give to other young people from Northern communities who want to get involved with the sciences? I think what's most important when it comes to engaging youth in knowing about STEM is to be proud of who you are and where you come from, no matter where you are in the world. And there's so many great things that we can learn about <clears throat> and never like, I think it's so important to uh, always know that no question is a wrong question. No question is a bad question. That's where science is so important because if you're not wondering about something, if you're trying to uh, trying to learn something, then it's important to make these mistakes because um, I often make mistakes and learn from them and realize that it'll be okay to make these mistakes so that youth can see and say, okay, well, if I do give it a try and make a mistake, then it'll be okay because Nicholas did, right? But uh, it's so important for youth to be engaged in anything that they're interested in, whether it's science, technology, engineering, arts, or mathematics. These are all things that um, we can learn about each day. And it's not something that, you know, like when I think about going to university, it's not something looking at my degree of environmental science, but it's the journey getting there and the connections that I make and what I'm looking forward to. And by the time I do reach my degree, whether that'll be in three years time or longer, what's most important is to enjoy the journey and to always be inspired to help one another and never think that any question is a silly question because that's, you never know, you might become the one of the future leaders in your community or beyond that. And uh, always be proud of who you are and where you come from. Our last question then for you is what do you have planned for the future? Well, I think one of my strongest interests in the moment, seeing I'm on summer holiday from university, is uh, to continue learning Inuktitut. Someday my, one of my biggest goals in life is to become bilingual and fluent in Inuktitut as well. Because uh, I think it's so important to teach youth and um, you know, down the, in the future, my children and grandchildren, the language. And it's so important to build these healthy connections and to continue uh, supporting youth groups, whether that's participating youth groups, where I'm still a youth, or helping uh, to support places where people who are interested in learning the language or learning any cultural activity, uh, I like to help out and support these projects. And I'm also learning how to play the keyboard and piano. So. I'm hoping to uh, learn a bit more about that in the future and maybe to play here at our church in town and uh, to sort of continue the traditions that our elders and our grandparents, great-grandparents in the community um, would have learned through music and to, to share the language, to share health and well-being through the music. And uh, also, I'm really excited to continue on my path towards environmental science. I know I have a long way to go, but um, I think once again, it's the journey getting there and enjoying every step of it and knowing that um, I'll be making mistakes, but I'll also be uh, learning new things each day. So uh, it's been an honor to be here this morning and I'm, I'm really, uh, really grateful and thankful for um, both you, uh, Paris and Connor for inviting me this morning 
and I hope in any way possible it was a chance to inspire the future generation of youth and definitely future leaders because we are all leaders in our own way, whether that's in any field, uh, whether it's STEM or STEAM or not. We're all leaders and it's important to support one another and to, uh, to enjoy each day. So I want to say, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much to you as well. This has been a pleasure. Thank you for your grace and generosity. That was a really great interview, wasn't it, Paris? Absolutely. What an inspiring young man. He's going to go on to do some really good things for Hopedale. Certainly. And now let's introduce our next guest, Aisha Ahmed. She's 21 years old and moved to Whitehorse two years ago to pursue her education. Now she's working on a project that looks at how to safely manage mine tailings in northern communities. Let's hear what Aisha has to say. Okreya, so welcome to Arctic 360's Breaking the Ice. I wonder if you could just introduce yourself and, and uh, give us a few lines of bigger background. Sure, yeah. So my name's Aisha. Um, I live in Whitehorse, Yukon Territory. Um, I'm currently completing my Bachelor's of Science degree in Northern Environmental and Conservation Sciences with University of Alberta in partnership with Yukon University. Um, I'm originally from um, Pakistan. Um, and I moved here when I was eight, moved to Canada, um, and then slowly immigrated my way up north, um, just based on interest in schooling. So uh, how old were you when you moved to the north? So I moved to Whitehorse two years ago, um, but I was involved in projects in the north before then. Okay. And how old are you now? I'm 21. 21. Okay. I guess like uh, to get deep into it, like, could you explain where your specific interest in science comes from? Sure, yeah. So I guess my involvement in science um, kind of started off in like primary school um, through science camps and uh, day camps and science fairs. Um, but I think my primary, like my interest in pursuing science as a career um, kind of occurred out of sight, which sounds a little silly as uh, saying it as a 22 or 21 year old. Um, but yeah, I think, um, so I grew up in a very like male-led culture. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to Canada where these kind of avenues of women pursuing careers in STEM was a possibility. Um, and I guess to kind of showcase that women can have these roles and still be feminine or be women was one of the main reasons why I wanted to pursue something in STEM. When you describe your kind of immigration story, right? Coming from Pakistan to the Southern Canada, all the way to North, like what does that trajectory, like when you look back at that trajectory, what are the moments, like are there kind of seminal moments or like turning points that you can remember that's contributed to your worldview now? It's so complicated, hey, but 21 years of life. Um, but I moved around quite a bit in Canada um, and I'm often surprised that I ended up in the north because it's not one of the things that you kind of expect um, when you officially immigrate here but I think the first time that I considered like actually sat down and was like okay this could possibly be something that I do for the rest of my life was in high school, in grade 12, um, I lived in Niagara Falls at the time, um, and I did something called a mentorship project um, through Brock University, which is like a co-op where they take grade 12 students um, and pair them up with researchers at the university. And then through that partnership, you kind of pursue a small section of research. Um, and I did homology modeling for the heme proteins of Giardia intestinalis. And being a, like you go to school for so many years and you're you're assuming that you're going to come out of that learning how to think properly or learning how to be able to investigate science. But it wasn't until that point where I was like, wow, this is what using my brain feels like. Um, and I think that was that's, I think, one of the major points in my academic life where I was like, this is what I want to pursue. Um, but more, I guess, in my personal life. Um, my mom was a child bride and she didn't get the chance to kind of have a career until much later on when she was an adult and finally had some resources available. Um, so I think 
watching her try to grow and um, refine herself as a woman um, also helped uh, narrow down what I wanted to do earlier on in life. And what, uh, what brought you north specifically? So I guess it's kind of a weird story, but um, I actually did my first year at McMaster University because I was in high school there and thought I wanted to go to university there. Um, but I ran into a few health issues and then decided to move back home. And then home at the time was in Mississauga. Um, but my parents decided <laughs> to kind of move across the country. And I was like, okay, I'll go there for the summer. I'll see how Whitehorse is um, and if it kind of aligns with my career that I wanted um, and absolutely ended up falling in love with the place. Um, I think about a few months into living here, I got a job at the research center and that kind of solidified the transfer of McMaster University to University of Alberta with a partnership program at UConn University. Right, perfect. So that's a good segue into the actual work you're doing at UConn University. So can you tell us about the work you're doing there? Uh, when did you start uh, attending and what's the research project you're working on there? Sure. So I started attending the university in 2019. It was actually considered UConn College um, in 2019. It recently did the transition. Um, but I started working with Guillaume Nielsen, who's the Industrial Research Chair in Northern Mine Remediation, which sounds like a really complicated and probably too long of a title. Um, but it's basically research looking at industry partnerships, which is um, some mining corporations, mining companies, and governments who are looking after abandoned mines um, with environmental scientists and seeing what the remediation process of those abandoned mines could be. Um, and I started off working as an events coordinator for him. So I was working on hosting this conference regarding um, best practices about environmental remediation. Um, and then COVID unfortunately hit and our event was canceled. Um, so I became a part of the saturated cover project, which is what I'm working on right now. It's evaluating mine tailing technology and how it functions in cold climates. Um, it's definitely one that's already been looked at in regions that are that average um, not zero degrees, um, so anything above zero degrees Celsius, um, but really looking at the freeze and thaw cycle and how that can affect mine tailing management. And so to circle back with the uh, mining tailings, uh, could you explain specifically what that is? And from our understanding, it's bad for the environment. Um, and so could you um, also explain well, why is that so? Sure, yeah. So in every mining operation, um, in order to sift through material and take out, I guess, the good stuff. So that's uh, the gold, the metals, the whatever you want to have for profit value. Um, you have to kind of take this large piece of soil or rock or earth material um, and put it through a processor uh, to kind of remove all these metals. But once you remove all those metals, you're kind of left with this like other stuff. And that's what's called um, mine tailings. Um, and because of that process of removal, you have to add chemicals to it. You have to add um, all kinds of different processing material to it. Um, which causes the material that was once stable to be reactive and um, have emissions that could degrade the environment really poorly. So in order to deal with that, um, there's mine tailing management systems in place. Um, and saturated cover, a saturated cover is one of those systems, which is where you basically fill, you make like a man-made lake kind of, but there's no water so kind of like a large hole in the ground um, and you fill it with those tailings um, and then the saturated part is you kind of lift a water table into those tailings in order to make it impermeable to oxygen to prevent combustion reactions from happening which happens through either like oxygen exposure or water um, and then in Canada specifically, we try to limit the interaction with tailings and uh, oxygen. So that's one of the ways we do it. 
And so what is the most, what is the most fascinating aspect of this work and figuring out how to manage these in the North for you? What do you find most interesting about that? So you think research was not meant to be done in the North in the way that we're trying to do it. Um, so one of the things that I'm looking at is like, okay, there's this thing that's a saturated cover and it restricts this oxygen diffusion, but how does oxygen diffusion happen when you take this tailing pool um, from when it freezes in the winter time and then when it thaws again, like what are those characteristics? What does that look like? How does the pore space react to oxygen permeability? Um, and one of the ways I'm looking at that is through lab scale modeling. And it's really difficult to do because there's not a lot of equipment that can work in negative climates. Um, so you really have to be innovative in trying to figure out how to make um, lab scale experiments that can actually test those things. So what I've done is um, I created this column to have like a synthetic, this clear pipe um, with affixed spaces and tops um, to kind of have this synthetic mine be made. And in order to see what the oxygen diffusion is, I have this special oxygen sensor at the base of my synthetic saturated cover, um, but the oxygen sensor doesn't work in cold climates. So in order to have my column go through this freeze and thaw cycle and still measure oxygen, I needed to figure out a way to keep the base unfrozen, but the rest of the experiment frozen. Um, so what I had to do and what a lot of researchers have to do in when working with northern climates is kind of try to um, experiment and see what you could come up with. Um, so I'm using currently these things called heat wires, which is what you use to keep your roof de-iced in the wintertime, um, just coiled at the base. So when I'm putting my experiment through the, the freezer and then taking it out, it like is still a frozen environment, but I've created a micro environment within that to keep things unfrozen. Um, but yeah, this experiment specifically has been quite difficult because there's not a lot of um, sophisticated technology that can measure parameters that can also function in cold climates. Um, but yeah, this I think this uh, project has been probably the most difficult, but also the most fun in coming up with solutions. Um, so far, there's like two page lists in my lab notes of all of the different moving parts of it to try to keep things unfrozen, try to keep things waterproof. There's different 3D parts that I got to design for the first time, which was really fun. No, it's really interesting. Yeah, I, 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 uh, I read a, a Facebook post from the university that said that you were involved with designing 3D printed parts for uh, an upcoming lab experiment. Was this the same experiment or was that a different project? Yeah, that's that's this experiment that I'm working on. Okay. Um, yeah. And so what were those 3D printed parts for? So in each of, so in order to make sure that that column is still going through the freezing process and not being affected by this heat wire process at the base of the column with the oxygen probes, um, I put three temperature probes in three different locations um, within that column that I talked about um, to kind of monitor the temperature evolution and then also monitor unfrozen volumetric water content as it goes through the free cycle. Um, but in order for it to be affixed to the column and still be waterproof with the contraction and um, the contraction that comes with freezing a plastic material and thawing a plastic material, we really had to make sure um, that specific parts were made to hold it in there and then keep it stable and um, keep our records going. Um, but I'm glad you brought that up because one of the most interesting things to come out of part one of the Saturated Cover Project, which was actually published yesterday. Congratulations. Very exciting. Thank you. Um, was that there's still unfrozen water within our tailing system at negative eight degrees, which is it's insane because water freezes at zero degrees Celsius. So for there to be water at negative eight degrees is um, kind of unheard of. Like that's not something that we knew was happening before. Um, and part of this new project will kind of look at why that's happening and how that's happening. 
And so to pick on the, you know, the innovative aspects of what you're doing, um, and as a scientist who is working on really cool technology, I guess a question that we've been trying to weave in is how do we balance economic interest uh, with the uh, environmental uh, mitigation and uh, management? And especially since that's the work that you're, you're uh, somewhat dealing with, do you think that maybe the dichotomy itself puts uh, innovators like yourself at a disadvantage? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. Um, I think as an emerging environmental scientist, it's one that I find myself thinking about really frequently. I mean, there's no question that mining can generate huge economic value from fairly small areas of land, but it obviously has like a massive environmental cost associated with it. Um, and one of the things that's kind of become apparent to me after studying in the environmental sciences and then also holding these research roles is that I don't think that the balancing point between like economic benefit and environmental trade-off is stationary. I think it um, changes really frequently and it's specific to every mining operation. Um, but one of the things that I think uh, like could allow us to approach or even hold this balance could be through like increased environmental sciences partnerships with actual mining companies at all of the operational steps during a mining operation to ensure that there's environmental perspectives along the way. And then also having environmental scientists with diverse backgrounds, um, people who can have um, traditional knowledge and apply it to ways to remediate all of these areas and kind of um, have a better understanding of how to assess what could be sacrificed in the environment or what remediation versus restoration really looks like, you know? And, and so also to follow up on that then, um, who are the members of your team and what guidance do they give you um, or inspiration do they give you? I think I have one of the greater benefits of being part of a team that kind of has industrial partners, university partners, and also a lot of um, indigenous partners with indigenous peoples in the Yukon territory. Um, so how a lot of the projects work in Northern Mine Remediation is they typically have a student researcher with Dr. Guillaume Nielsen, who is our, um, the chair in our research program, along with a company partnership, so a mining partnership, and an indigenous um, or First Nations person associated with the project as well. So my project is um, in partnership with Casino, the Casino Mine. Um, and because it's lab scale, I don't quite have um, a First Nations partnership with my project. Um, but I do consistently um, work with the department at the university to kind of have these conversations regarding what it looks like to have remediation in a place where there's so much traditional land. And because we do operate on the traditional ter territory of the Kwaman Dun First Nation and the Taan Kwishan Council um, to make sure that all of their needs are being respected and um, acknowledged. I'm going to change gears a little bit here. Uh, I, I want to ask you, what advice would you give to other young people who want to go to the North or who live in the North who want to get into the sciences? What have you learned so far from your experience? I think research, um, specifically industrial or STEM research, definitely has a need for more diversity. And while this year specifically, but also life learned experiences of people who are disabled, BIPOC peoples and folks of marginalized genders has taught us is that there's a lot of barriers to STEM positions. So I guess my advice to young people who'd like to get involved would be to persist, even if you don't see yourself currently reflected in the field, which is totally unfair. But um, even when I started applying, I think I applied to 15 jobs before I got an interview from even one, you know? So yeah, it's super unfair, but really persist through it because I think science could use a lot of a lot more people. And do you think that federal governments um, and territorial governments do a good job in encouraging young people, especially uh, women and people of color um, and people with disabilities, to get involved um, in the North um, or interested in, um, in the sciences? Um, I guess I could only really speak from my personal experience in the Yukon Territory. Here, I think they are. 
But I also think they need to recognize that a lot of marginalized people, it doesn't quite have to do with the avenues of application. It also has to do with feeling safety in these spaces. So I think probably as a whole, Canada needs to look at um, kind of the atmosphere and the culture within a lot of research and a lot of, I guess, jobs in general um, and making sure that there's no cultural barriers as well as barriers that you only see on paper. Now, uh, asking specifically about the North, do you think that the North, the problems of the North of Canada are being adequately given adequate attention in terms of the sciences? Is the full potential of the North being utilized right now? I think it's kind of hard for me to gauge that just because I'm in the middle of everything. So to me, it feels like every single news agency is covering this and, you know, every single person is talking about this. Um, but definitely when I go into mainstream media and um, kind of do my little research perused through um, online forums. I think, I think the North is probably one of the more untouched spaces in the world, probably because of the barriers to access. But I think there's a lot of really interesting research, a lot more interesting research that could come out of um, places like this. So yeah, I think while on a micro scale, it feels like there's been enough being done to evaluate all of these research spaces, I think there definitely could be a lot more resources in place for people to access. On that note, what do you have planned for the future? Specifically, do you have any plans uh, for staying in the North? I still, I would like to finish my full degree here. Um, I have the option to, I guess, return back to U of A whenever I would like to. Um, but I really enjoy the research work being done here. Um, but past my degree, I would really like to get into more environmental and industry partnerships past my incorporation. Um, while I do think that these partnerships are important and I think that they need to stay in place long term, I personally would like to look at um, environmental remediation or environmental research as it partners with medical research or medical processes, um, especially after COVID-19 and seeing waste from masks and gloves and single-use materials, um, I'd really like to see how research could change that or I guess see how research could recycle that. Um, in terms of staying in the North, I definitely really love it here. Um, I don't see myself leaving long-term, perhaps only to pursue a master's or a PhD because I don't think they offer a lot of uh, those programs here, but I think I'd like to live here long-term and have a career here long-term. It's great. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, we need more people staying up in the North and doing really cool research there like you're talking about. I think that's really awesome. Um, so that's the end of our conversation, but uh, just before we wrap up, I was wondering whether you wanted to add anything that our audience should know about you or the work you're doing that we haven't brought up so far in this call. I think I have sufficient tangents about the kind of research work that I'm doing. But the North is really cool, guys. Check it out. <laughs> okay, thank you for appearing on our podcast today. It was great talking to you. Yeah, it was a privilege. Yeah, thank you for having me. There's certainly no shortage of young talent in the North, isn't there, Connor? That's right. And later on, we'll be releasing another episode on Young Innovators in the North, where we'll speak to Michael Martinez, a young man from Alaska who's already started his own biotechnology company. Tune in soon for that conversation.